You know, there's never been a greater worldwide approach of the gospel and outreach of the gospel than now. Through the use of modern technology, media, books, creative evangelistic methods and techniques, and just old-fashioned one-on-one personal witnessing, more people have been exposed to the Word of God and the gospel of Christ than ever before in human history. And yet, with all of this gospel outreach, there seems to be relatively little response to God's Word. It's true, we may hear about some who respond to the gospel, and we do hear about those who respond to the gospel and who are genuinely converted to Christ, but most people, the majority of people, either outright reject the gospel message or they make some type of profession of faith in Jesus, but soon fall away claiming to even believe in him and to follow him. Now, as thinking people, we need to step back. We need to to ask some questions. We need to ask, why is there so little response to the Word of God? Is there something wrong in the way that we as Christians speak about Christ? Perhaps our methodology, perhaps our techniques are wrong. Or maybe there's something wrong with us personally. Maybe our, our lack of results in leading people to Jesus is because of our our spiritual lives. Maybe we're not spiritual enough. Maybe we're not godly enough. Maybe God isn't blessing our evangelistic efforts because of our lack of spiritual depth. Or perhaps there's something wrong with our understanding of the Word of God and how we use it. After all, some may say it's, you know, it's such an ancient book that maybe we need to just spruce it up a bit in our presentation of Scripture by making it sound more relevant, making it sound more pertinent and more applicable for today's modern world. Maybe then people will be attracted to Christ. Well, I got to tell you, although many so-called church experts have suggested that these are some of the reasons for such a small evangelistic harvest, none of these issues, though, has anything to do with why so many people these days are unresponsive to the gospel. None of these issues. Methodology certainly isn't the reason why people don't come to faith in Christ. God hasn't promised to bless our methods, but rather he has promised to bless his word. Isaiah chapter 55 verse 11, in that verse God says his word which goes forth from his mouth will not return empty to him, but will accomplish what he desires and will succeed in the matter for which he sent it out. So methodology doesn't determine evangelistic success at all. And what about our spirituality? It's true that every true believer in Christ longs to grow more. We long to be more mature. We long to be more godly, more spiritual. Results in evangelism, though, are not based on the spirituality of the messenger, but rather on the truth of the message that we proclaim. Listen, if God used angry, rebellious, unmerciful Jonah, the Old Testament prophet, if he used Jonah to lead an entire city of Ninevites to repentance, then he certainly doesn't base evangelistic success on our spirituality or lack of spirituality. And what about the use of the Word of God? Do we need to make it more attractive, more appealing to a new generation for it to be effective? Well, I remind you that when the Apostle Paul was faced with pressure by the Corinthians who thought that he needed to bring into his gospel presentation some Greek philosophy and that it would be more palatable then to the 
philosophically oriented Greek Gentiles of his day, Paul said these words in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. He said, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom. He's saying, I didn't come to you with human philosophy. That's what he means. Proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you, he says, in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. Again, he means human philosophy, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Paul said, I didn't add philosophy to the message. I determined, though I knew philosophy, though I'm well learned in man's wisdom, I determined to know nothing when I was with you except Jesus Christ and the cross. So God's pure and adulterated word has not lost its power to bring people to Christ. Because faith still comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, not by human philosophy. You see, the real reason that so few people are responsive to the gospel has just absolutely nothing to do with any of these things. Our evangelistic methods, our personal spirituality, or something lacking in the power of God's word, none of that is valid. The real reason has to do with the sinfulness of men's hearts. And we know that this is the real reason, the root reason, the heart of the problem that so few respond to the gospel because Jesus gave a parable in Luke chapter 8 that taught this very truth. Luke chapter 8 verses 4 through 8, we read this. When a large crowd was coming together and those from the various cities were journeying to him, he spoke by way of a parable. He said, the sower went out to sow his seed and as he sowed, some fell beside the road and it was trampled underfoot and the birds of the air ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky soil and as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. Other seed fell into the good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. As he said these things, he would call out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now last week we began to look at this parable, and it's known as the parable of the sower because it's the story of a sower, in other words a farmer, who cast seed onto his field, and in doing so, his seed fell upon various kinds of soils. Some were hard, some were rocky soil, some soil were infested with thorns, and some soil was good, and it was productive soil. And the interpretation that Jesus gave in explaining to his disciples the meaning of the parable is that the different kinds of soils represent the various kinds of spiritual heart conditions of individuals who hear the gospel and their response to the gospel. What the Lord was telling his disciples is that this is what they, and by way of application, we can expect these days as we spread the word of God. This is what we can expect. In essence, what he's telling us is that during the church age, the days that we are living in, we would be functioning, and we do function, like sowers, like farmers who just throw seed upon different soils. Just as a farmer tossing plant seed on his field would inevitably find that some of his seed fell upon unproductive soil, he would also find that some of his seed fell upon productive soil. So we, 
as sowers of the word of God, we will find, and we do find, that as we witness for him, the message will inevitably fall upon different types of heart responses to the gospel. Some of which will be fruitful and productive, but most, most will be unproductive and unfruitful. In other words, the four types of soils represent four kinds of heart responses, reactions that we can expect from people as we share with them the gospel. That is to say, as we spread the seed of the word about Christ and salvation, we can expect most people, the majority of people, to be like the various unfruitful soils in the parable. However, by way of encouragement, we can also expect that a small minority of individuals, they're out there. They'll be responsive to the gospel. And as a result, will produce godly fruit in their lives because they indeed are truly converted. Now folks, I want you to know this is an extremely important parable for all of us to understand. Not only because it tells us why so few people actually accept Christ, but also because it explains why there are so many people who at one time professed faith in Christ, but then they walked away. They walked away from any association with Jesus, any association with the church, any association with Christianity and with Christians. You see, without an understanding of this parable, you may very well be confused and discouraged as to why so many people who you witness to just aren't interested in Christ, and those who you've witnessed to who do seem to be interested at first eventually stop being interested, and they lose all enthusiasm, all interest in Christianity. It's easy to grow just disheartened from that. So this can be, without an understanding of this parable, it can be extremely discouraging to the point where we may conclude, well, listen, why witness at all? Why witness to anybody? Because I never seem to see anybody come to faith in Christ. And those who are responsive, who look responsive at first, they don't seem to last. So why bother witnessing? But listen, in spite of the many rejections that you and I get as we share the gospel, as Jesus said in this parable, there's an encouragement here too. It's an encouragement to us because though you may experience a great deal of rejection in the gospel and you're witnessing, there are some hearts out there, some hearts out there that God has gone before and he's prepared prepared them to receive the message of salvation. While this is not part of the parable to explain it, these are the elect. The elect will receive the message of salvation and they will be genuinely saved. Now, these are just some of the reasons why this parable is just so important because it helps us to understand the kinds of reactions that you and I will get, have gotten, and will continue to get as we witness for Christ. Now last week, we only had time to look at one, one heart reaction to the gospel. As Jesus began, as you know, his disciples came up to him and said, explain to us the meaning of the parable. And so he begins to interpret it just for them. And we looked at one, we looked at the hardened heart. I'll quickly review this. Verse 12, this is his interpretation of the first kind of soil. Those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they will not believe and be saved. Now this individual is like the hardened roadside soil, packed down soil in the parable. The seed of the word lands on him, lands on her. Someone has witnessed to them about Christ, but it never penetrates their hearts. 
and why? Why doesn't it penetrate their hearts? Because continuous sin and resistance to the truth have made this person's heart so hard that they simply neglect the Word of God. They really don't care about it. They don't care about it. The Word just lies there on the surface of their minds without giving this person a passing thought concerning this. They don't think about this. They go on their merry way. They never stop and give careful, contemplative thought to this that, you know what? Maybe this message is true. Maybe this is the message that'll save my soul for all of eternity. I need to really think about this. No, they don't do that. This person hears the gospel, but he never allows the word of God to make any meaningful impression on him. He just gets on with his life and never thinks that he's just heard the most important message he will ever hear in this world. This is why Jesus said in Matthew's fuller account of the same parable that this person, he said, hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it. You see, the reason he doesn't understand it is because he doesn't want to understand it. And why doesn't he want to understand it? Well, it's because the message involves making Christ Lord or King over his life. Once again, in Matthew's account, we read that Jesus specifically referred to the message of salvation. Note this, he called it the word of the kingdom. And that's significant. Because wherever you have a kingdom, you must have a king, right? Otherwise, you don't have a kingdom. And that is, folks, the real reason why this hard-hearted individual dismisses the message of the gospel. He just doesn't want Jesus to be his king to be his Lord, to rule over his life. Listen how Dr. James Montgomery Boyce in his book on the parables, he explains this kind of opposition to Christ in these words. He said, the opposition of the unregenerate heart to God's sovereignty is particularly evident in these kingdom parables. For kingdom means rule, and rule is the same as sovereignty. When Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God, he came preaching God's right to rule over the minds and hearts of all people. But that is precisely what the people involved did not want. Adam did not want it. He had great freedom, but he was offended by God's restriction in the case of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If God exercised his sovereignty at that point, it was here that Adam would rebel. And so he did and fell, carrying the whole human race with him. That spirit of rebellion against the sovereign God works itself out in history until the Lord Jesus Christ comes to earth and the response of his people is this, we will not have this man to rule over us. And hard-hearted people today, folks, they respond the same exact way. They hear the word about Christ. They hear that he's Lord, he's Savior, he's King. But because they do not want him, they will not let him rule over them. They do nothing with the gospel. It's so meaningless to them that they just fail to give it any careful consideration. And that's why they fail to understand it. In other words, they don't understand it because they don't think it's even worth thinking about and considering whether or not it's valid. And because they do nothing with the word, it just lies there on the surface of their lives without penetrating their minds and their hearts. And Satan sees all of this. He comes along and he snatches the word that they've heard from them by giving them all kinds of convenient excuses and justifications so that they rationalize away their rejection of Christ. And that's why you'll hear from unsaved people, 
All kinds of reasons that they have for not trusting Jesus as their Savior, their Lord. But these are satanically inspired reasons. Well, Christianity is too many hypocrites. I don't want to be a hypocrite. I'm already satisfied with my own religious system. I don't need anything else. I'm fine, thank you. I don't believe that people are inherently evil. They're good. I'm good. And I'm not bad enough that I need a savior from sin. Maybe there's a few people out there who do, but not me. The Bible can't be trusted because it's full of errors, full of mistakes, it's full of contradictions. I'm not going to believe that book. Now, people may give these types of excuses for rejecting Christ, but the real reason, the real reason they reject him is because their hearts are hardened to the truth, and they want their hearts to stay like that. They don't want to change. So that's our Lord's interpretation of the seed of the word that fell on hard, packed down soil. But as Jesus continued explaining to his disciples the interpretation of the parable, he went on to speak of a second type of response to the gospel. This isn't the hardened heart, but this now is the shallow heart. And let me say that that with the hardened heart, there is no response to the gospel. He He just rejects it. However, the next person, the shallow heart, he does respond to the gospel, but he does it with a shallow heart, which is very significant. Verse 13, those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, they receive the word with joy. And these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation, they fall away. In contrast to the individual with a hardened heart, someone is just totally unresponsive to the gospel. This person, as you can see, does respond to the word. In fact, they respond very quickly. I say that because Matthew records Jesus saying that this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Now, this may appear to be something that's quite positive, but I assure you, It's not positive, it's negative, even though this person offers no resistance to the gospel and he seems to enthusiastically embrace the truth about Christ the moment he hears it as if he's been waiting for this all of his life. This is not good. This is not positive. It's quite negative because this person isn't really converted. And the reason we know this and the reason I say this is because at the end of this verse, Jesus said that they believe for a while And in time of temptation, they fall away. Meaning this, they believe for a while, and they don't just walk away, they fall away. They stop believing. They're not just backslidden. They reject Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that this person was once saved, and now they're lost because Scripture very clearly says that I give my sheep eternal life, Jesus said, John chapter 10, and they will never, ever perish So this isn't someone who was saved and lost salvation. This is a person who was never converted, never saved in the first place. So let me explain what Jesus is talking about. In describing people like this, those on the rocky soil, the Lord was comparing this individual to the rocky soil he spoke of back in verse 6. Other seed fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. So, Just like the seed that initially looked so good because it it sprang up so quickly, so this individual initially looks good too because he quickly responds to the gospel and his life apparently does take on some changes. But understand this, that his response to the gospel message isn't the response of a person 
who's been convicted of his sin by the Holy Spirit so that he's thought through all the implications of salvation and commitment to Christ as Savior and and Lord of his life and he's decided, I will trust him. That's not like that at all. See, this individual's response to what he's heard about Christ, it's shallow, it's impulsive, and it is purely emotional. There's nothing deeper than that. In other words, Jesus was teaching that this individual's heart is like the the shallow soil with just a layer of rock just beneath the surface so that just as the seed of the plant initially looked so good as it sprang up quickly, so this person's life initially looks converted as he makes some significant changes in his life. But you see, the plant only gave the appearance of being healthy when it wasn't. It was just a, a short lived plant because its roots could not penetrate the rock beneath it to receive moisture and nourishment. Likewise, the shallow-hearted person, initially, he gives the appearance of being a Christian when he's not because he's never been, note this, he's never been rooted in Christ. And the changes in his life are just very short-lived. They're temporary. They're only outward. They're only external because his heart has never been transformed by the gospel. He doesn't know Christ. Now, this individual may become very active in the life of the church, very enthused about the church. He may be in attendance in church every time the doors are open. He may, he may give the appearance he can't get enough of the study of the Bible. And he may even become a very vocal and zealous witness for Christ. However, the problem is this man, as I said, he's not rooted in Christ. And so his changes are only superficial. They're only outward. There's nothing deeper than that. They're not coming from a heart that's been transformed. Not coming from a regenerated heart that's been transformed through repentance and faith in Christ. And the proof that this person has not been converted is that like the plants without any root in the shallow soil so that they wither and die from being scorched by the sun, so this individual will eventually fall away from any association, any connection to Christianity. Let me make it clear, this is not a backslidden person. This is a person who said, I believe at one time, and now I don't believe. Never been saved. This is precisely the point Jesus was making when he said at the end of verse 13, and these have no firm root, For they believe for a while, and in time of temptation, they fall away. Jesus said that the shallow-hearted individual falls away when temptation comes. And by temptation, Jesus explained a little bit further in Matthew's account of this verse that it's temptation due, he said, to affliction or persecution that's related to the Word of God. In other words, when this individual is faced with the possibility of suffering for the cause of Christ, he falls away from even being identified as a Christian. And the reason he falls away is because he doesn't know Christ. He doesn't love Christ. He's never had, as I said, a transformed heart with a new nature that is even willing to suffer for Christ. He's the same old unregenerate person with just a few outward changes. Back in Jesus' time, we'd call them a Pharisee. In other words, he's just not willing to pay the high price of being one of Christ's disciples because he was never one of his disciples to begin with. Now folks, we need to understand the shallow-hearted false disciple because evangelical churches, especially in the United States today, are filled with them. 
They're people who claim to be Christians, but they have never been converted. People have witnessed to them and, and oftentimes leave out repentance, leave out commitment to Christ. They just say, pray a prayer, walk an aisle. I just want you to pray the sinner's prayer and I'll be satisfied you're a believer. But they may pray that prayer, but their heart's never been changed. And the proof that they're not converted is that at the first sign of trouble, the first indication that they might be called upon to suffer for Christ, they denounce their faith and they're just gone. Gone from the church, gone from fellowshipping with Christians, gone from any association with Christianity. They're just gone. See, true believers in Christ, note this, they persevere in their faith, meaning they continue to follow Jesus Christ even during the most difficult times and the most challenging trials. Yes, there are bumps in the road and nobody likes suffering, but a true believer says, Lord, I will love you even during times of adversity. Jesus said this in John chapter 8, verse 31. He said, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. The mark of being a true disciple is to continue in his word regardless of the circumstances. Those who continue following Christ regardless of trials, pain, suffering in their lives, they prove that they're genuine disciples of his. But false disciples walk away from the faith when they are faced with suffering. And oftentimes what happens is they grow angry at God. They grow bitter. How dare God do this to them? While true believers don't do that, they may struggle. They may struggle because nobody enjoys suffering, but at the end of the day, they draw closer to Christ. They draw closer to Him, and they eventually say, yes, Lord, whatever you want, I submit. They submit to His sovereign will to bring suffering into their lives. Paul wrote this to the Colossians in Colossians 1.23. He said that true believers continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. True believers are loyal to Christ. They are never moved away from the hope of the gospel. But that's not the case with a person whose heart is like rocky soil, shallow, temporary. So I want us to analyze this type of response to the gospel and discover the, the problem the problem with this kind of person. For one thing, he's the kind of person who acts on the spur of the moment. He hears the gospel and, oh yeah, this is what I want. But he doesn't take time to think through the critical issues involved in becoming a true follower of Christ. This person, he fails to count the cost of following Jesus. He fails to consider that he needs to repent of his sin. He needs to be submissive to Christ's authority. He genuinely needs to trust Christ as his Savior as well as his Lord. And sadly, oftentimes Christians, as I said a few moments ago, who talk to them about the gospel, we're so eager for this person to make some kind of profession that we don't explain to them the issues of repentance, submission to Christ. They may even talk a great deal, as I said, about the sinner's prayer. Just, just pray this prayer. Look at your church. Just walk an aisle and, and tell whoever's at the front, I want to accept Jesus. But they don't explain to them the cost of being a, a true follower of Christ, that it requires that you hate your sin and you want to turn from your sin and you want to turn to Christ with a willingness to follow him. They don't say that. It's what we call easy believism. They don't talk about the lordship of Christ. They don't talk about repentance. They don't talk about being broken before him. See, those who come to Christ for salvation, they come with a brokenness over their sin. They see their sinful hearts. 
They experience conviction of their sin. They see the absolute wickedness of their hearts before a holy God who rightfully, rightfully could send them to hell and it would be just of him. True believers see the the understanding of God's holiness, their wickedness, and they humble themselves before God with a contrite heart. They don't want to continue in their sin. They don't like the way their life is going, and so they repent of their sin and they trust Christ's death on the cross for the forgiveness of their sins. But that's not what this shallow-hearted person has experienced. He's had some type of religious experience, but it's just an emotional experience. It wasn't true salvation experience. Now, you may wonder, why in the world would anyone do this? Why would anyone respond so quickly and emotionally when they hear the gospel? Why would they be so excited about the gospel without actually trusting Christ? Well, the answer is very simple. The answer is that there are many people who get excited when they're exposed to the Bible because they think that if I believe in Jesus, he'll make my life better now. Your best life now. That's what they've been taught. That's what they want. Jesus is going to remove all of my earthly problems. So they look at Jesus as someone who's going to make life better for them. Better finances. Better relationships with other people. Better, better health. Better, perhaps a better marriage. But what they didn't anticipate is Jesus bringing suffering and pain and sorrow into their life. They just think life is going to be great from this point on. But Jesus does bring suffering and pain and sorrow into our lives. And why does he do that? He does this, mark this, he does this to prove the reality of our faith. And in the case of an unbeliever, to prove that there's no reality to their faith. He does it not for him to see if we're genuine or not, because he doesn't learn anything. God has never learned a thing. He knows everything, but we don't. And he does it for our benefit to show us if our faith is real or not. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. That's why it's so wonderful and exciting that we're almost home. It's reserved in heaven for us who are protected. He means you're protected now. You're not going to lose this salvation, this inheritance, by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. You greatly rejoice because you have a home in heaven. But watch this. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, and it is necessary that we have trials, you have been distressed by various trials. Why is it so necessary? So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable even though tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When you go through trials and you see that you say in your heart to the Lord though you slay me yet I will trust you that proves that you are a converted person. Paul essentially said the same thing in Romans chapter 5 verses 1 through 4. He said therefore having been justified by faith We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. Paul, we exult in our tribulations? Why? 
He goes on, knowing this, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. When you see yourself go through a trial and you still cling to the Lord, that proves your character. It proves that you're a true believer and that gives you hope and assurance that you're a true follower of His. You see, when genuine disciples, when we face trials because of our faith in Christ, we persevere. We continue. We don't walk away. We remain loyal to Christ by obeying his word. But when false, shallow-hearted pseudo-disciples, when they face trials because of Christ, they say, I'm out of here. I didn't sign up for this. And they just stop pretending to belong to Christ. As quickly as they initially seem to embrace the faith, just as quickly do they reject the faith. So I'm telling you, this is not about a backslidden Christian. This is about someone who rejects the faith. Years ago, a man prayed with me to receive Christ. And everything looked good until I told him, you know, you need to publicly confess your faith. You need to be baptized. From that moment on, he wasn't neutral. He turned completely opposite and hated Christ. Hated him. That was the turning point. He wasn't neutral about Jesus. He hated Jesus. He revealed his true colors. He, as I say, was one of my converts, not one of the Lord's. Wasn't a true believer. He walked away from the faith because he never embraced the faith. This is precisely what the Apostle John said in 1 John 2.19, where we read, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. John says that certain individuals who once identified as Christians, they would say at one time, I am a Christian, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. They went out from the company of true born-again believers, meaning that they left the fellowship of those who were really converted revealing to everyone that they were never converted because if they had truly been converted, they would have remained in the fellowship of true believers. This is exactly what Jesus said the individual with a shallow heart does. He walks away from Christ because he isn't rooted in Christ. He's never been converted. And so, having explained his parable by speaking about the person who, number one, is hard-hearted, And the person whose heart is shallow, Jesus now moves on to a third type of heart response to the gospel and he gives his interpretation and that's the person with a preoccupied heart. Verse 14, the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. Now, the Lord compared this person's heart to soil that was just full of weeds in the form of these thorns. Just as the plant seed wasn't able to grow because the thorns choked out all the nourishment needed for their development. So, there are certain thorns in a person's life that just choke out the Word of God and them bearing fruit from it. In other words, like a field infested with weeds that just compete with the seed, this individual's heart is infested with weeds that compete for the Word of God. 
So what kind of a person is this that our Lord was speaking about? Well, he was referring to the type of person who is just too occupied. He's too consumed. He's too, he's too concerned about the things of this world to take seriously the gospel of Christ. This is the kind of person who listens when the gospel is explained to him. And unlike the hardened heart, he doesn't reject it outright, nor does he respond to the gospel with shallow-hearted enthusiasm. His problem is different. He hears the gospel. He may even make a profession of faith in Christ, but there's no room in his heart for Jesus because his heart is already filled with certain things of this world that he just loves. And it's these things of the world that act like weeds to choke out, meaning what? Meaning they squeeze out the word of God from ever bearing fruit in his life. Now, Jesus spoke of three specific things, he said, that choke out the gospel from having any kind of an impact on this type of individual. First, he spoke of worries. Worries. Or, as we read in Matthew's gospel, the worries of this world. The worries of the world choking out the word of God. Meaning what? Meaning that this individual's life is preoccupied and it's filled with all kinds of anxieties. He frets over a lot of things about life in general. He's so consumed with worrying about such things as money, his job security, his health, his safety, his future, his reputation, his possessions, that he just really doesn't have an interest in eternal matters. Because the only things that are really important to him is living for today. That's all he really cares about. Ken Hughes describes this individual as someone who, whose heart makes a gesture towards Christ, but life's worries draw it back, leaving no room for authentic spiritual concern. Folks, what Jesus was describing here is a worldly person in the truest sense of that expression. Because all he really thinks about are the issues of this world, of this age, and not the next. He's never considered what eternity will bring. He's never thought about what happens after I die, or if he's thought about it, he's quickly dismissed it from his mind. So he's never really seen the need to repent and trust Christ for eternal life. He's never seen the need to prepare for eternal life. All that matters to him are today's problems current issues. He has a heart that's simply too preoccupied with the challenges of life here and now to consider anything of a eternal nature. Second thing that Jesus said chokes out the word from taking root in this kind of a person's heart, he said, is riches. Or as Matthew records Jesus saying, the deceitfulness of riches. This is the kind of person who, because he worries about whether or not he has enough money, enough possessions, enough material things, he has deceived himself into thinking that having money, well, that's the answer to all of his earthly problems. And so he lives to make money and to accumulate possessions. Years ago, one very foolish person I knew actually said to me, if I win the lottery, all of my problems will be over. Now that's a person who is deceived by riches. I understand the Bible never condemns making money. It never condemns having money. But it does give serious warnings about the spiritual consequences of loving money, of pursuing money, of wanting to get rich. 
In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, Paul said this, But those who want to get rich, notice, not those who are rich, you can be poor and want to get rich. You can be rich and want to get even richer. Those who want to get rich, he said, fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. He said, for the love of money, notice it's not money, it's the love of money, he said, is a root of all sorts of evil and some by, once again, longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Paul said that those whose main pursuit in life is riches, all they think about is accumulating wealth, only end up, he said, with many griefs because in pursuing riches they ignore their own souls. And in doing so, they deceive themselves into thinking that money is all they really need, only to realize after death, tragically, that they are lost for all of eternity, and then it's too late. Now, the third thing that Jesus said chokes out the word from taking root. In this kind of a person's heart, he said, it's the pleasures of this life. And by this, Jesus was referring to those pleasures which, in the words of one Bible teacher, lure the soul away from life in Christ. They, they just lure it away. You see, there are certain fleshly pleasures that are just sinful, and they're clearly condemned in Scripture as sinful, like drunkenness, sexual immorality. Those are just outright sinful and wrong. But then there are other fleshly pleasures that, in and of themselves, they're not sinful. However, they become sinful when they become idols and a person overindulges in them like sports, like games, yes, like video games too, like entertainment, like consuming food. Both of these types of pleasures choke out the seed of the gospel so that as Jesus said, they bring no fruit to maturity, meaning they don't produce any righteousness because this person's heart has never been transformed by Christ. He's been deceived into pursuing the wrong things in life, riches and pleasures. This is precisely the kind of deceitfulness of riches and pleasures that squeeze out the word that Jesus spoke about in another parable in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 12, starting at verse 16. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So Jesus said, is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. This story, this parable, gives great warning to anyone who is put off coming to faith in Christ, regardless of what your age is, because you have made it your priority in life to be wealthy. That's been your goal, to the neglect of your soul. Jesus said that you have deceived yourself. In fact, Jesus is very blunt to say you're a fool if that's what you're doing. You haven't just acted like a fool, you are a fool because all you have accumulated is someday 
going to be gone when you die. And then you'll find yourself facing eternity without having taken care of your soul. What a foolish thing to do. But many are like that. Now, I just want to give a word of caution to those of us who are believers as we witness to people who are like this about Jesus. Never compromise the gospel message when you speak to someone who is preoccupied with worries and anxieties over mundane things and making money. Never compromise the gospel because you're so eager to get a profession of faith out of them that you fail to call them to repentance because you think, well, that'll just turn them off. If they get turned off, they get turned off. But you have to be faithful to the gospel. Call them to repentance, to forsake their sin and turn to Christ and trust Him and yield to His authority in their life. You see, this is the kind of person who thinks that he can just add Jesus to everything else in life. I've got all this stuff over here. Yeah, I'll, I'll just add Jesus. There'll just be one more thing that I have. That's not how it works. Because he thinks he can hang on to the world and all it has to offer, but also believe in Jesus. That's not how it works. So you have to make it very clear, this is not the case. Not at all. Jesus can't be his Savior without being his Lord. We don't divide Jesus. We don't say he's Savior, but not Lord. Of course he's Savior and Lord. That's who he is. You see, there are many people like this in evangelical churches. Sadly, people think they're saved, but they're not. And they're relatively easy to spot. They profess faith in Christ, but they demonstrate no commitment to Christ ever. And they have absolutely no interest in serving him. They just come to church, they sit. When I say, thank you for coming, you're dismissed. They are dismissed, they leave. That's it, that's their involvement. They live only for whatever seems to benefit them. This is the kind of person who says, yes, I love Jesus, but his love really lies in another area, himself. He's preoccupied with himself and he's totally unconcerned about righteousness and obedience to Christ. Jesus himself, he put his finger on the, on the real issue when he said in Matthew chapter 6 verse 24, he said, no one can serve two masters. It's impossible. For either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You see, this is the kind of person who has to be told by us as we witness to them very bluntly that you cannot claim Christ as Lord as long as you reign as Lord over your life. You have to relinquish your lordship to Him. So make sure, folks, you call them to repentance as you present the gospel to them. Now, so far, we've seen three types of heart responses to the gospel. And they've all been negative responses, haven't they? The heart hearted person hears the word but refuses to even consider it. The shallow hearted person hears the word and quickly responds to it, but it's only in a superficial emotional way. The preoccupied hearted person, he hears the word but his attentiveness to the cares of this life and money issues just leave no room for the message of the gospel to impact him. However, there's a fourth type of heart response to the gospel that Jesus spoke of and that is the fruitful heart. The heart that is productive Verse 15, but the seed is the good soil. These are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. Now, in contrast to the other three soils, Jesus called this soil, he said it's good soil, meaning that it isn't hard, it isn't rocky, it isn't filled with thorns like the other soils. It's different, it's fertile. It's receptive to the seed of the word. 
This type of soil, he said, are like those individuals who hear the word with an honest and a good heart. And they hold on to that word, meaning that they cling to it. They won't let it go. And unlike the other types of people, they produce fruit with perseverance. So with this kind of description, what kind of person does Jesus have in mind? Well, first of all, in calling the soil of this individual's heart good, understand this, Jesus wasn't saying that this person has a good heart in the sense that it's a sinless heart, or even a heart that's better, more righteous than any other people, all these other soils and people he's talked about. No, the the Bible makes it abundantly clear that no one's heart is good, and that prior to salvation, We were all hostile towards God. We were all rebellious, sinful towards God. For all have sinned, Paul said, and fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. No, no, not one. The heart, he said, is deceitful and desperately wicked. And Jesus said in Matthew 15, verse 9, he said, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. So if this is the condition of all of our hearts, then why did Jesus call the soil of this man's heart good? Because this person's heart is good only in the sense, and only in the sense that God by his mercy and grace has sovereignly worked in this person's heart and prepared it to receive the word of God. You see, God has softened this man's heart to the gospel so that unlike the hardened heart, this person understands the gospel Meaning he hears it, he sees his need for Christ, he grasps the message of the cross, it makes sense to him, and he receives Christ. And unlike the shallow emotional heart, this person really does receive the word because he's been convicted of his sin. He's been convicted of his need for repentance and faith in Christ. And unlike the preoccupied heart, this person, he does hold on to the word He doesn't let life's cares crowd out the Word of God. He holds tenaciously to it. In other words, this is the only individual in all of this parable who's converted. He's compared to soil that's truly converted. And the proof of his salvation is that he produces fruit in his life. And the fruit that Jesus is referring to, they're the godly attitudes and behaviors that come from a life that's been transformed by Christ. This is the fruit of the Spirit that Paul refers to in Galatians chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, humility, self-control. Not talking about perfection, but the general direction of your life is this. It's godly and righteous actions of someone whose life has been changed by Christ. It comes from the heart. It's not just outward. It's not just superficial. It's a lifestyle of obedience to the word of God. And Jesus said, this person bears fruit. He said, with perseverance, meaning that even during the hard times and adversity, this individual pursues Jesus Christ. He lives to honor him. See, what the Lord is telling us is that while most people today, yes, they're going to reject Christ. Some though, Some will be responsive to it, and those who are responsive to it will evidence new life in Christ that they're really saved by the way that they live. And that's because all true Christians, note this, all true Christians demonstrate the genuineness of their salvation by producing the fruit of godly attitudes 
and behavior. You cannot say you're a Christian and there's no fruit at all in your life. John MacArthur said, at least there's going to be, you know, a little sour grape there. There's going to be something in your life to show that Christ is in you. Now, this doesn't mean that every Christian will bear the same amount of fruit. That's why Matthew records Jesus as speaking of various degrees, varying degrees of, of fruitfulness. He said some 100-fold, some 60, and some 30. The reality is that some believers are just more committed and just more obedient to Christ than others. However, all believers, without exception, will evidence their salvation by a transformed life that produces some spiritual fruit of righteous attitudes and behavior. So, if you look at your life, as Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith, and you look at your life, and there's no godly fruit at all, at all, then it means you're still unsaved. Regardless of your profession of faith, regardless of how long you've been in this church, regardless of, of who your parents are, regardless of what family you come from, if there's no desire and no desire of godliness, then you fall in the category of either having a hardened heart, a shallow heart, or a preoccupied heart, but not a saved heart. And if that's the case, then you still need to be converted. You still can be converted. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Repent of your sin, turn to Christ, trust Him as your Savior and your Lord. It's not too late. However, while this passage of Scripture, certainly it forces us to examine our hearts, I do want you to understand that the primary purpose the Lord had in giving this parable is to encourage us and to enlighten us as His followers to be faithful in our witnessing for Him. And that's because the parable very clearly teaches that while much of our witnessing efforts will be met with resistance, as I read earlier, most people will think the message is absolutely foolish. It's ridiculous. It doesn't make sense to them. We're, though, we're not to be discouraged because God has told us that he prepares some hearts. These would be his people. These would be the elect. He prepares some hearts to receive the gospel. Therefore, we need to make sure that we do what? That we're busy throwing the seed of the word, that we're faithful to throw the seed of the word on as many lives as possible, and that we trust that the Lord will cause our witnessing seed to fall upon some good soil, some people he's prepared to receive the gospel. At the same time, the parable also serves as a warning to make sure that our professions of faith in Christ, that they're real. That we aren't those who have just had an emotional religious experience without genuine repentance and faith. You know, it's so easy sometimes when you're with friends and they're calling upon the Lord to be saved. And oh, oh, I want that. And, and at the spur of the moment, you, you yet, yes, I'm going to call upon Jesus to save me. But if it's just an emotional experience because everybody else is doing it, it's not real. We also need to make sure that those of us who have claimed to believe in Jesus that there's no competing love for the things of this world that have absolutely choked out the word. The only real proof that you have that you've been saved is the fruit of godly attitudes, godly behavior. You know whether you have them or not because they stem from the heart. So I ask you, what is the condition of your heart? Make sure that it's not hardened, it's not rocky, it's not preoccupied, but only fruitful. Now, 
as we close the service, if you'd like to speak to one of our pastors about this, then just see me. Just see me after we pray, and then I'll make my way down to the front. and Just see me. There'll be other elders there who can help you. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this parable. It is so simple and yet so profound. It's both. It's not hard to understand, Lord. But it is hard for us to try to think through about people we've witnessed to and their response. I, I pray, Lord, that this has been enlightening, that this will help us to understand the days that we live in as we share the gospel, why people reject you. I pray, Lord, for anybody here who has never truly accepted Christ. As they look at their life there, there is no godly fruit there. I pray that they'll be honest and that they will repent of their sin and not make any excuses and not deceive themselves into thinking they're saved when they're not. And I do pray that you'll encourage us, those of us who know you, to be faithful, Lord, to redeem the the time for the days are evil, Paul said, to use our time wisely as you open doors. May we never be guilty of forcing ourselves on anybody in the gospel. But may, as you open doors, may we share the truth of Christ with people. And may you, Lord, in your kindness, give us some people who are ready to receive you and they'll bear fruit and they'll continue to bear fruit. So Lord, I pray that you'll take your word. May it grab hold of our hearts and change us. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.